You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is from an earlier interview with Monica Eaton Cardone, the COO at Chargebacks 911. Hello, everybody. I am thrilled to be here for NPE Summer Week and even more excited to share with you uh, our upcoming discussion around navigating risk and security. We're going to be talking this afternoon around reducing friction, but building trust at the same time. And we'll focus on chargebacks and dispute management in the first portion and looking at how to secure digital payments with technology uh, later on. And then we'll round out the, this full discussion with an expert panel. So I would really like to encourage you to sit back, take some notes and uh, enjoy the following presentation. And I'd like to invite to stage our very first speaker, Monica Eaton Cardone, who is the CEO of Chargeback 911. Monica, the stage is yours. Thank you, Gayla. It's so great to be here. Um, so uh, just a, a quick overview. You know, if we think about security and risk, I think, you know, let's, we, we kind of need to section off COVID because there's so many different things that have changed, 10 years of change in the last four years. But even though that's tempting, I think we really also need to redefine a new normal. And, and part of this strategy takes understanding, you know, what, what history has taught us. So um, if, we, if we look at this slide, uh, and this is something that has been a little bit baffling. Uh, so I've tried to understand what is the actual cost of e-commerce risk for the card schemes? And because obviously, you know, this is probably the largest, um, I guess, regulatory body or, you know, they, they're managing uh, all of the rules, compliance and guidelines. And I, I thought, are they paying insurance premiums like insurance companies? Because it also seems like merchants and acquirers are currently funding those premiums. And it doesn't seem like this was the original design. And I'm not sure that chargebacks are the best management for today's market or, or for today's risk analysis. So let, let's take a look at this as, as well. All right, so for those of you that are under 40, probably you've never even seen this, um, but the fact is chargebacks are about 30 years old. It was a system that was created you know, decades ago, and it really hasn't changed much despite terrific changes in the industry in terms of you know, actually accepting payments. The fact is what was true then is not only not true now, it actually barely even exists. So now let's take a look at history. I'm sure that we all remember checks. What an efficient way to replace cash. Some of us would have called these the good old days. It was such an innovation. We had, you know, with, with checks, now somebody could leverage money that was in their account and actually not even in their account. You didn't have to carry cash. You could write a check. The merchant could accept a check. Only something happened with this issue. Unfortunately, after time, loopholes were exploited. And as consumer spending grew and more and more checks started being adopted as a standard, paper checks became more of a problem than a solution. What ended up happening is that consumers overspent causing unexpected NSF returns, so insufficient funds, and merchants started suffering all sorts of losses. That was a complicated issue because it also created a terrific amount of manual processes and workflows that were never anticipated when the whole check you know, premise was laid out. The good news is, this particular problem became a catalyst for continued evolution. 
And as a result, we have cards and we have, you know, this, this whole revolution in the digital world. Now card payments, they offer a digital streamlined system. And this doesn't leave merchants exposed for NSF returns. Merchants know with confidence that if a consumer pays with a card, well, clearly the money is there. The merchant receives the money. There's no messy checks. If they give a refund, it goes right back to the card. What a great solution. The problem is that even with these, even with a replacement of cards, we're, we've started to see history repeat itself again. Only the returns are coming through different forms. And soon we'll probably be talking about those good old days related to interest rates on credit cards. As, as you know, on the issuing side, there's also some unintended consequences. But bottom line, just as history has repeated, loopholes are being exploited. And speaking of loopholes, I, I just want to take a look at this video. Are you Let's kidding? $4,800? Is that your scam? Huh? You like taking money from little old ladies? You break it, you buy it. You're lucky I don't call the police. That machine malfunctioned on me. You're going to be hearing from my lawyer. No, I can't all right, hear all right. Just stop it, Timmy. Here you go. $4,800. Don't give him cash. You should put it on your card and dispute it later. I do it all the time. I don't believe in credit cards. Cash is real. You should be charging shit like crazy because you're old. And by the time they come to get it, I mean, All right. not, I'm just saying you Go may in not the car. still be here. I know what you're saying. You could be dead. Get in the car. I'm trying to help you with I your don't, business. I, get in the car. There's there's various celebrities in the media um, that you know have come up with terrific scripts and and part of you know a, a, a film script is they really want to relate to everyday life. Right. This is how you create humor. You expose some of the nuances and idiosyncrasies. Well, what this video shows is actually um, Lisa McCartney, who's a, a well-known actress, and she's paying for merchandise and she's actually, you know, correcting the person that she's with and says, you know what? Why are you paying with cash? Use your credit card. You, everyone knows that if you use your credit card, you can just call your bank, file a chargeback and you can get this stuff for free. This is what I do every single month. I mean, I'm making $5,000 a month. Well, there, there's numerous situations like this. We have social media, we have uh, orange and black about what is going on behind the scenes and how easy it is to take advantage of this 1% you know, or 0% liability insurance that comes when you get a credit card. So when you have a credit card, then you know that you're protected. Well, if it got created as a protection mechanism, and this is something that you know actually was designed to help improve and get card adoption, we're actually already there. And, and in fact, we have grown significantly and plan on growing significantly where e-commerce use over the next five years is probably going to be well over 50%. The issue is that the very item that was created to protect consumers is, has a very different use today. This is an item that is now being used to manage compliance, to manage risk, and there's a lot of unintended consequences that have evolved as a result. So let, let's take a look at these statistics. The, the fact is, you know, if we if we look at how things have evolved and grown industry wide, the money spent to reduce fraud fraud is absolutely staggering, both in strategies to try to prevent chargebacks as well as strategies to try to capture consumer interests. Competition is fierce, and every merchant is not only competing with similar sellers, they're actually competing with their customer's bank in terms of who can provide service the fastest. Visa and MasterCard have proven that this model is here to stay. And we know cardholder use is at record numbers. However, 
you know, merchants haven't and, and acquirers haven't discovered a way to quickly to adopt and be as successful, you know, with this evolution, partly because they are, you know, they're actually navigating uh, archaic rails in terms of chargebacks and how risk is being managed. So while the front end is expanding and we have consumer behavior driving all of this movement, there hasn't been as much attention to make sure that the back end technology can keep up with that change. So there's an old Indian al allegory that I love, right? It's about six blind men and an elephant. And, and basically the idea of the story is that each blind man touching a completely different part of the elephant is describing the elephant completely different. So for example, you know, if you're touching the trunk, maybe this elephant is a snake. And, and the king is asking, can you please let me know what you see? Well, what this helps illustrate is that without all of the data and without a consistent approach, it's actually impossible to accurately assess a problem. This reminds me of how the industry is thinking about the chargeback and fraud problem. You can only improve what you can measure, and there must be a consistent structural method. Challenges that we have today are vast. For example, let's look at merchants. There's really very little consistency, and there is definitely not a standard between a card not present merchant or e-com versus card present. Let's break this down. If you have an e-com merchant, according to uh, statistics from Amazon recently, 25% refund rate for, for, that, for, for their e-com business. That, that's incredible. So their refund rate is 25% and they have a 24 seven customer service. They're available online. They never get to see their customers. Now, in contrary, if we compare that to card present with refund rates, maybe up to 7% and the requirement that if a, if a consumer wants to get a refund, they need to physically show up at the merchant's place of business during business hours between nine to five and with a receipt, and they may not even have a refund policy. It's just a very, very different ballgame. Another example. So we have reason codes that are tied to every chargeback. Well, as things have evolved, and of course, the chargeback infrastructure was not designed 30 years ago to account for all of the evolution and change. But what has happened is the amount of chargebacks have caused you know, some, some instability. So let's take a look at if you're an e-com merchant and you receive 100 chargebacks. Out of these chargebacks, possibly 90 of these hundred are going to be coded with reasons saying it's fraud. However, it's been confirmed that the actual reason of that chargeback is any reason but actual fraud. In fact, seven out of 10 are assumed to be friendly fraud, an industry term specifically to define the wrong reason for a chargeback. In other words, a chargeback that shouldn't have even happened. Now, as an e-com merchant, they can't pay, they can't, they can't actually learn anything from these chargebacks unless they have more data to understand what it caused. Should they be penalized for a friendly fraud chargeback? Then you have a card present merchant. Well, they're getting considerably less chargebacks, but also almost no friendly fraud. So let's talk about solutions. First, now let's address a real white elephant, the white elephant in the room. We need more fair rules. It's illogical to suggest that all of the friendly fraud in the market that, that is going on, that 
a merchant or a flyer would still be penalized and fined or forced to refund if the chargeback was wrongfully filed and even if it was proven to be filed in error as a result of friendly fraud. We also need standardization. Navigating multiple schemes, rules, regions, and consistent change in such a volatile market with digital evolution has really created challenge in terms of defining what is compliant and what is not compliant. This is not scalable and it's rewarding the wrong side of the coin. We need better technology. This is key. The opportunity for data-driven decisions is here, but it's not being used universally. For example, the data exchange between issuers and the schemes with the birth of EMV is about 10 times more than it was before. Yet, technology doesn't enable issuers to receive much more. The issuers are receiving a fraction of that information to make their decision. Acquirers are receiving even less and merchants even receive less. This ends up creating a lot of extra manual work, guesswork, incorrect decisions, and it actually creates costs across the entire industry having the most impact on the very consumer that it was designed to help protect. Okay, I once read a study done on the most amazing achiever of our time, uh, or achievers, and there were three qualities. The ability to quickly adapt and learn, the ability to persevere, and the rage to master. Now, only if we've become only, only if we can actually tackle all three of those things, then we'll be in a position to confront what is in front of us. So if we take a look at what is going on in the industry, it really is a scenario of, of balancing friction. I can't think of a better, a better example of fast food. It's the most frictionless meal that you can have, but it adds a lot of friction on the back end. You need to balance the equation of, you know, not adding risk to create friction for the customer, but also adding risk on the back end so that you can balance that equation. If you imagine that, you know, only two out of 10 merchants end up representing or disputing friendly fraud today, what if that number doubled? What if it quadrupled? We would have a much more balanced equation. So you have two options, right? You have option one, which is advocate change, and hopefully we get that done. You have option two, which is, you know, implement better decisioning, implement better technology, make sure that you are leveraging collaboration and actually innovating. This is going to make sure that you are the Netflix in the payments industry as opposed to Blockbuster. At the end of the day, what we're really talking about is leveraging the data that all of us have access to today in a more intelligent way that helps solve problems for all stakeholders, ultimately improving the customer experience, whether that customer is a merchant or a consumer. Thank you very much for your time. And again, it was, it's great to be here. Thanks, Monica. We'll talk a little bit later with you about some of those nuances, say on friendly fraud and how to identify that and give us some hints and tips. Uh, but we'll be back with you in a bit, but thanks so much for your, for your presentation. Looking forward to having you discuss it entirely with the whole group. And now we will turn to a very different perspective, which is that of what a government can actually do to address some of the issues that have arisen since the pandemic and how we start to deal with cyber innovation, payments, digital security, fraud.
And I'd like to invite Rahab Shalom Revivo to the stage. She is the FinTech and Cyber Innovation Manager for the Israeli Ministry of Finance. So we'll get an inside look in what the cybersecurity, I don't know what, what he, the hub, the, the global hub of cybersecurity has to say about this and what we can expect to see in terms of trends and approach to managing a huge spike in online activity and online consumption. So Rav, stage is yours. Thank you very much, Gaila. And hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here uh, and meet you all, even if it is in a virtual manner. Uh, my name is Rahab Shalom Revivo. I'm from the Israeli Ministry of Finance. And I'm going to speak to about today uh, about the way that we protect the financial ecosystem and uh, about the way that we uh, support the uh, financial institutions and the entire ecosystem in their work. Uh, prior to my work in the Ministry of Finance for the past three years, I, um, I'm, I've started my role in the industry as a uh, co-developer, then became an R&D uh, group and senior manager, and then uh, the way was paved towards the uh, government-related uh, activities. So um, in my presentation today, I will start and share about Israel's National Financial Cert. And the National Financial Cert is an entity that is working with the entire financial industry in Israel. We are working with all of the banks, all of the credit card companies, all of the big insurance companies, and almost all of the medium ones, um, the securities, clearance house, and so on. And we're providing them a trusted zone in which they can, on one hand, share events and incidents, ask for help and support, and we'll see several events from the past few months in order for you to better understand how can we uh, work with them and support them. And we are also providing them uh, proactive support with threat intelligence, recommendations, asset protection. You can think about us as a ways app for the cybersecurity um, employees in, a financial, uh, in the financial industry, helping them to navigate between different recommendations, understand the current threat landscape, new attack vectors, and so on, in order for them to be able to be much more safer and secured. The work with the financial cert is done on a voluntary basis. There is no a mandate for them to connect to the financial uh, cert. There is no uh, regulation, but still um, almost all of the financial industry is connected in order to receive our help uh, and support. The financial cert itself is a joint venture. It is led by two government offices. One of them is the Ministry of Finance that is bringing the business logic, the understanding of the business needs, the importance of some activities and in uh, the industries versus in sectors versus others. And on the other hand, we have the Cyber Directorate, which is the governmental entity in charge of uh, cybersecurity for the civil landscape and they provide the technology, the methodologies, and uh, the tech understanding uh, behind that activity. The financial search focus is not on a specific uh, institution, but it is on end-to-end -end financial processes. The understanding that these processes that you see in front of you right now is crucial and important to the uh, entire public in order for them to operate. When, for example, when COVID-19 uh, started to uh, outbreak and when uh, people started to withdraw a lot of money from ATMs in order to make sure that they have cash on top of everything in order to make sure that everything is secured, protected, the cash flow process was one of the processes that we uh, um, made sure that will continue to be provided both in standard times and in emergency times. The perspective on end-to-end -end financial processes also at the ministry, led the Ministry of Finance to a situation in which we are 
not working only with financial institutions, but also with third party suppliers, with critical vendors in the supply chain, which are not regulated by the financial regulators, they do not hold money. But if a specific one tech company or another uh, will be shut down, will be uh, in problem due to cybersecurity issues, then the entire process, the entire a service will not be delivered in the country. So this is why we are observing these end-to-end -end financial processes and focus also on the critical vendors, on uh, our critical third-party suppliers. During COVID-19 outbreak, you know, we also the changes in behavior with uh, work from home, accelerated the digitalization. Uh, there is a famous saying uh, of uh, Microsoft CEOs that said that in two months, we made a quantum leap of, of two years in, in digital. Uh, processes became much shorter. There is much uh, faster approval paths and much less uh, components in place in order to approve uh, some sort of uh, activity or another. We are embracing new technologies with, uh, without thinking about it. And we wanted to make sure that the financial ecosystem is focused on, still focused on cybersecurity and business continuity. This is why we have published a guidance to the local financial ecosystem, focusing on three main areas. The first one is on people making sure that you have replacements, making sure that you have social and technical support, uh, making sure that you're working in organic teams. All of these are uh, facts that we're all used to right now, but because of the fact that COVID-19 is attacking people first, then this is why we focused in that vertical as well. The second area focused on processes making sure that the situation reports are being delivered to, to board members of the directors, uh, making sure that we have the right procedures and permission management in place, the key vendors, how do I make sure that I continue to receive support from them and so on. And another layer of technology, how can I make sure that my remote connections are secured? that uh, do I use two-factor authentication? What kind of authentication am I using? Make sure that I have the right monitoring, filtering in place and so on. So, so this was with the first wave that uh, attacked all of us. The second type of very specific activity regarding COVID-19 was uh, after a slowdown in the outbreak, at least here locally and in being prepared to the second wave. What can I learn from the scars on my body uh, addressing all of the needs in the first wave in order to be better prepared? What is missing? What do I need to purchase? What do I need to put in place in order to be much more uh, prepared? Um, and one of the things that uh, the financial cert believes in the most is in sharing of information. This is one of the services that we're providing. And we are sharing information, not only internally uh, to the local Israeli financial ecosystem, but also externally in the international level. We have many financial institutions, international financial institutions connected to the Israeli national financial cert in order to consume information, data, uh, recommendations, and so on. We have uh, also, we're also working uh, directly in a bilateral manner with many uh, countries around the world. So all of these guidance, recommendations, support were also translated to English and also sent to all of the international financial institutions that are connected to us. Now, just to spice things up, I want to share a few sample events that we have seen a lot during uh, the last few months. And we'll start with smishing campaigns. Smishing stands for SMS phishing, uh, phishing message that I am receiving as a victim, not only in email, but also in an SMS to my uh, mobile phone. And the smishing campaigns actually started a lot uh, before COVID-19 outbreak. It started in May 2019, but we have seen uh, as in Israel and the entire world a very dramatic increase in these type of campaigns after the COVID-19 outbreak.
And the campaign in Israel started against the tax authority, and then it started to influence also uh, banks. And what was interesting with that campaign is the fact that the attacker managed to bypass the OTP mechanism, the one-time password mechanism in which when I'm connecting to my um, bank account from my mobile device, for example, I receive a code in an SMS in which I need to type and then I can uh, enter my account. The attacker managed to automatically bypass the OTP mechanism as well, in which the victim still continue to receive that one-time password, but then the um, attacker uh, updated the password immediately in the bank account and automatically. Another aspect that was interesting in this campaign was how did the mules that actually uh, uh, withdraw the money from the accounts were hired. Uh, we found two main vectors. One of them was restaurant reviewers in which people were sometimes fooled and thought they really are running a restaurant review. In some cases, it wasn't the case. And also gamers in which uh, people uh, received uh, money for the review, um, which is much more than the money that they need to uh, receive, then they bought Bitcoin and then transferred the Bitcoin to the account of the attacker. Um, in which, uh, in that way, uh, there was no track of the money trail. Uh, what we did in these cases was, first of all, situation evaluation, both with the banks and with the enforcement agencies on how can we stop that account. Second was actions that were taken with them in order, uh, for example, to take down a phishing website outside of Israel, then we have contacted the partnering, the counterpart cert, in order to ask them to take down the website, and we got answers very quickly to that. And also we gave recommendations to the banks and to the public. Another type of campaign that is very um, connected to the smishing campaign was sim swapping. In the smishing campaign, uh, the victim was uh, fooled and uh, he needed to type the one-time password, the two-factor authentication. In these campaigns, the attacker managed to, to do call forwarding on the, attackers, on the victim's number to the attacker's number, and then they managed to control everything. They don't need the victim in place to type, they don't need him for nothing. They are receiving all of the calls, all of the SMSs that are directed to, to them. In this case, uh, the um, um, people that were, the, the attack patterns was, were also by physical access to personal information. For example, my physical mails that uh, I receive uh, home and then they can see which number do I have and so on. Employees of a phone, uh, of mobile uh, uh, booths were recruited and then they were uh, working with the attackers and transferred uh, information to them and so on. And um, beside awareness and investigation campaigns that we've done, we also managed to work with all of the mobile carriers in order for them to harden the process of uh, call forwarding. We don't have a lot of time, so another type of uh, attack that we've seen recently was uh, started since February 2020, in which a malicious application was installed on the victim's phone. It uh, was targeting mainly Android-based uh, phone, Android phones. The victim was um, uh, downloading the application by himself, usually through direct streaming websites. But the in the it, and it was a, it was looking like a game or something like that. But the interesting fact about it was the privileges that the application received. They can access your SMS, your audio recording, your uh, they prevent sleep mode for the application. They prevent even deleting the, the application. And another interesting fact was the target bank that was associated with that. Every time that I'm a victim, I have that malicious app installed on, on my mobile phone. Every time that I launch an application that is interesting 
to that, uh, to the attacker, uh, my financial application, uh, uh, my uh, 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 purchasing applications and so on. I then the application, the malicious app is running in place and trying and starting to fetch all of the information that is being transferred. So to put it in a nutshell, uh, I have covered several activities that we are doing from a national perspective in the Israeli Ministry of Finance, uh, the financial cert, the work with the financial supply chain. Um, we are running financial cyber drills to the financial leadership um, and so on. And I'll be happy to share more uh, during the panel session. Thank you very much. Gaila, the stage is back to you. Thank you, Rahav. It's fascinating in terms of those particular examples of how quickly attack vectors can pop up and how to coordinate a response when you're looking at so many actors in that supply chain in order to respond. Um, I'm really looking forward to having a fuller chat about this, but I want to bring in two additional people to discuss the, the bigger topic of navigating security and fraud in, in post-pandemic uh, world. And the first person I'd like to introduce is Sandra Feinberg. She is the global lead on fraud from Microsoft. Hi, Sandra. I think uh, while we're waiting for Sandra to unmute, we'll also introduce the lone gentleman on uh, the panel, Tim Buckingham, who is the Director of Payment Service Consulting Limited, uh, years of experience in this and a very interesting perspective on what, uh, how to be flexible, agile in response. I want to start off sort of addressing the elephant in the room. The COVID crisis has significantly impacted the way we consume and it's actually, uh, put a very sharp increase on the dependency of e-commerce and on the nature of digital payments. And the digital payments provide us that data, that rich data that Monica mentioned. And it also exposes loopholes and opportunities for exploitation. So this has been an overnight paradigm shift. How has that shift changed the way we need to start looking at cybersecurity, but also how we start to deal with fraud in a more nimble way, what are some of the other sort of examples of fraud that are seeing pop up? And why is it called friendly fraud when it's just fraud? So there are a couple of things to unpick there, but let's start with this notion of what's the biggest fundamental change that we have seen in the last five to six months in terms of how we live with digital payments. and. Tim, I'd like to start with you just in a, in a very broad sense. Give us an idea of what we're looking at, and then we'll we'll have Sandra take a perspective uh, after yours. So, so I think um, uh, the, the, clearly we've seen a, a a huge move across to payment by card. Um, everyone shops on Amazon during during the uh, uh, COVID crisis, um, but what people are realizing as well is that, and this picks up on on something that that, that was discussed in in uh, Monica's presentation. It is too easy uh, to actually challenge the transaction and put the onus back onto the industry to work out whether goods were received, whether people got their um, got their uh, 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 goods at all, and that is 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 creating a, a huge loss. I, I saw these stats that that, that that Monica put forward for what's called friendly fraud, and I've got a perception on on, on friendly fraud. Um, people. Um, uh, when they when they're not sure what to do, people will claim against any anything that they can possibly do to try and get their money back, and and that's possibly understandable. Um, and if they get the money back from two different sources, what do they do um, in those circumstances? Do they pay the money back to one or or to the other? People don't know what to do. I think people are very worried uh, at the moment. We are moving into we think we're moving into a a very big. Um, uh, uh, downturn, uh, global downturn, which will be a byproduct of um, uh, people not then going back to their jobs and not spending, and therefore businesses will will, will start to fail. And and in those circumstances, um, uh, it, it feels to me that people are then going to be looking at any opportunity that they've got to actually 
actually put um, uh, chargebacks through and they'll be surprised how easy it is uh, to actually challenge a, a transaction, um, particularly with an insolvent merchant. And for me, the chargeback system is fundamentally flawed uh, in the way that it deals with those transactions. It, it does not protect either the, um, either the issuer or the acquirer in those circumstances. So Tim, if we're looking at a flawed system, and as Monica mentioned, it's we're, we're learning history lessons and we're reverting to this was innovative at one point, but it's no longer relevant or it is no longer as secure. Uh, what does a new framework actually look like? What does an ideal framework look like? And how far away are we from that new, better, more robust and more secure uh, process to manage disputed charges. What does the panacea look like? And and I'd like Monica to comment on this as well. So the two of you share that answer if you don't mind. So so I I dealt with the um, collapse of Thomas Cook. I was I was, I was assisting with with the uh, uh, collapse of Thomas Cook, and that's a perfect example of what the industry looks like at the moment. Um, and and the chargeback system didn't work, uh, um, not properly. So you've got. Um, a situation where where the merchant is is insolvent. There's no employees left uh, over there at all. So you can't ask the merchant for information, or not very easily ask the merchant for information regarding individual um, uh, chargebacks. You you've then got um, the consumer who is very worried about their position. Um, they just want to get their money back. They don't really care where it's coming from. You've got the government telling them, uh, "Can you just hold on whilst we try and get." Um, your, your, your bond payments sorted out. Uh, you've got people who've, who've individually accepted insurance uh, or paid for insurance uh, policies to actually cover the cost of their travel as well. And none of these parties are properly talking to each other. So um, you, you have the opportunity there, unfortunately, for having to pay out twice or three times to the same consumer. That's what I was talking about when I was talking about friendly fraud um, uh, earlier on. What should that look like? um uh, uh, moving forwards well the systems are there the data is there um if we if it could be properly shared and used by the parties um, involved but but the way the chargeback system works at the moment is it places all of the onus on the merchant acquirer to defend a chargeback and if the merchant acquirer doesn't have that data doesn't have that information because because the merchant's insolvent then it's then it then it has nothing to do other than accept the chargebacks which are coming through, other than the other than the very obvious ones. That's that's wrong. I mean that's fundamentally wrong. That what that's doing is it's accepting payments, it's accepting um, losses into the payments industry, which ought to be covered by other areas such as insurance, such as bonds, and and for, for all of us in the payments industry. There's no logic to that. There's no sense to that. You, you have to build a system which actually can look at and interrogate the data properly um, and, and use that data to work out who is going to pay out a, a customer in relation to a loss. I think, Monica, you, 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 you've been quite heavily involved in that area as well. For sure, for sure. So, um, so I think, uh, Gayla, if I, uh, just in terms of you know, it's very easy to to get you know enraged about all of the injustice that is going on. Um, but you know, fundamentally, I think you know if we if we take a look at you know what an acquirer, for example, can do. Um, our experience, you know, started out with merchants just processing chargebacks. Um, now, of course, we we have expanded our platform in the last several years. For financial institutions and you know what we discovered is that if you just look at a chargeback it's the very tail end and the last ditch effort to help identify what the problem was well it's not logical that that we would manage risk just looking at that so part of the disconnect in our industry is that looking at chargebacks three sources you have merchant error you have it was uh it was a criminal fraud um or it's friendly fraud it's actually that simple. Well, if you actually back into now, an acquirer is responsible for managing that merchant error. That's operational risk. 
This is their internal risk management platform. And the authorization system, the fraud filter, is responsible for identifying criminal threat. The reality is chargebacks should just be an avenue to understand you know, reputational threat, an opportunity to improve, not necessarily compliance and risk. So I think things can get, you know, it's a better solution if you just simply could actually utilize the data that's available where you're connecting those three pillars for risk management. And that would include your pre-auth analysis, which is your fraud filter, um, really the post-auth analysis, which is, you know, the risk management, the central um, function for risk management in acquires where you're, you're making decisions on how much to then settle to the merchant with internal risk parameters that's taking all of that data in, in account. And then, of course, you have your post-transaction management, which is, you know, reputational scenarios that may actually be related to issuer declines where, you know, if you can identify perhaps an acquiring bin is generating automatic declines or automatic friendly fraud chargebacks, not due to anything malicious, but the issuer doesn't have data. They don't have feedback to know any better. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's really, if we can kind of share data between these three pillars, we're just going to have a much smarter decision. Monica, so, that is a fantastic point. And that is something that Microsoft does today, actually. We're sharing that to what we call trust knowledge with our banking um, issuing partners and working with companies like yourselves to complete that, that entire ecosystem. Fraud is on the rise right now, and it's very difficult to manage that, that friendly fraud. I'll give you a quick example with Xbox. So they have a, they're having an issue where children are calling customer service and saying, oh, due to COVID, my parents were laid off. Can I, free, can I please have some free tokens? Or, or they're using their parents' credit card and they're adding things to their gaming system. And then the parent gets their statement and says, wait a minute, I didn't do this. But yes, that's still friendly fraud. What happens when you have, let's say, a, an adaptive AI type of solution in the front end, as Monica said, in a pre-auth solution, you can gather those details, you can gather that information, and when any type of customer service issues happen, you can look and see what the transaction history has been of this particular entity, this particular card. And you can see, oh, refund, refund, refund. So that information is important to feed to the bank from your fraud provider. So we can help combat these friendly fraud issues on the back end as well. Sandra, thank you. I wanted to actually uh, address that notion of individual responsibility or firm responsibility versus a bigger liability framework. And there's something about the, uh, the exchange of data within a bigger liability framework and then the ability to analyze transactional data or history or pattern or, or trend data within your own customer set. And there's an interesting marriage between the firm level or the individual actor level, the merchant and the issuer and the acquirer and everyone in that value chain. And then a broader trend sort of data analysis that Raha was mentioning in terms of uh, behavioral activities and the types of threats and vulnerabilities in the system that are being exploited. You've mentioned a couple of interesting examples on the types of system abuse that are happening today. What other types of system abuse have started to increase since life moved into the virtual realm? Can you give us a couple of other examples of, of what that looks like? I mean, I'm thinking, like you just mentioned, a, a kid making a, a, a bad purchase and a parent not knowing and then charging back. Um, refund, refund, refund. And there's probably another level there in terms of internal fraud as well. So give us some ideas of what you're seeing as you're looking at all of that data coming through your systems. Sure. So we're, we're seeing um, an acceleration of employee collusion. So employees may have been laid off, uh, furloughed, and what they're doing is that they're working with these professional refunders. 
So, you know, that that is a term that is an actual thing. They they set up websites and they say, become a personal shopper. You can make, you know, $2,500 a week. But what's happening is that they're using employee discount codes to purchase something online. And then they're, they're shipping those goods. They're taking them back to the stores without a receipt. So then they're getting full credit or full cash back from the merchants. And then they're sharing a portion of those proceeds back with the professional refunder. So it's it's a complete network that is out there today. And there are many retailers who will accept up to $15,000 a day in returns without a receipt. So that is an organized effort that is going on today. And it's very important to be able to see, just like you said, see those patterns. Can, can that point of sale system tie into that online ordering system? So you can see how many times has this person actually done a refund? How many times is somebody claiming that, oh, I ordered something online and I never received it. Somebody must have stolen it off my porch. So what happens, the merchants resend that merchandise back out to the customer. And so basically for the one price, they're getting two of the same items. So I, I have to so, I have to comment on this because we're seeing the please. same collusion on the back end where even you know with the employees that are managing the chargebacks for a large organization, these employees are asking their friends and family members to order merchandise, have it received, file a chargeback, and then you have an employee that's in charge of managing chargebacks just accepts liability. So it is, yeah, it is frightening uh, just how much, uh, I guess, ingenuity some of these fraudsters have. It, it's not a typical scenario. What the scheme so, rules, uh, Tim, go ahead. Scheme rules dictate is is that the first line of defence here is the issuers. Um, so the issuers should be looking properly at the at the chargeback that's coming through and assessing whether it's a genuine chargeback. And well, I, I agree with that, yeah. but I, I also agree that your first line of defence should be your fraud protection provider. You I was, know, I was, with, I was coming to that. Okay, yeah. great. Please go. Yeah, I was coming to that. That's not working. Uh, and when you talk about, you know, how, how we can do things, the issue is, I think the issuers have to have better MI, frankly, because the minute you turn this over to a human element, they haven't got time to start checking back over people's payment histories. They haven't got time to see how many times have they done this in, um, in the past. So to, to a degree, uh, I think, I think um, you have to make life easier for the issuers by giving them MI that they can act upon in a, in a more automated way, which I think goes goes to your point. Exactly, you're totally 100% spot on. Yeah, it's a friendly fraud. Information to to understand, like, okay, we need to push back. There needs to be additional diligence. There should be, or some consequence for the consumer that commits friendly fraud and gets away with it. <laughs> So it's actually, I mean, there, there are a number of different uh, porous points in the system, right? We're looking at individual actors and uh, not all consumers are trying to exploit you know, merchants, but we're looking at merchant systems that are not necessarily taking advantage of data analytics or AI to spot pattern and start to recognize and pinpoint where those, those blips are in the system. And then we're looking at a different way of actually capturing, uh, and I'm thinking of Rob's presentation on SIM swapping or being able to bypass an OTP in order to access an individual actor system. So there's a different sort of threat level in terms of, uh, let's say, ha professional hackers that want to exploit the system and we're worried about that attack vector, but we're also worried about individual actors within the system who are trying to get away with not paying for something or that they've made a mistake and 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 it is friendly fraud because someone in terms of the investigation process has determined that they're liable for that payback all of those different things sort of coalesce into a, actually it just seems like a chaotic sort of problem to unpick where are some of the really smart places to look at 
the threat levels. We've got it on a firm level or that's an individual level, a consumer level. We have it on a merchant level. We have it in the liability framework uh, with the entire system. And then we've got um, a different level of cybersecurity where it's an external threat, not necessarily internal value chain actor. So it becomes much more complex, at least in my mind. And we're also talking about an unstable, uh, potentially regression level economy situation where some of those actors in the system may be insolvent at a certain point, And therefore there is another complexity to add in. If you were giving advice to a merchant or an issuer or an acquirer in any of these cases, what would you start to recommend in terms of here's how we address fraud in this new virtual landscape that is now our norm. And I'd like to actually talk about it from top down. So Rahab, I'm going to ask you, what would you recommend for, because you're looking at this sort of, and I'll call the, 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 the security cert sort of a security scheme, right? It's a trust framework. It's a data and information and intelligence sharing service. And to a certain extent, all of those who sign up to it, they're all regulated actors. They're all under scrutiny. They all have rules to follow. Um, but they're all part of value chain and managing financial services, whether or not, you know, they're actually part of an e-commerce uh, uh, value chain as well. So what would you give in terms of advice? And I think this would probably be the, the last question we actually get to ask. Where would you start unpicking the big problem from a government level? Let's start with you, Rahab. So you talked about the different uh, levels and where to look for that threat. Where should I, uh, what should I observe first? And I think that uh, the answer, unfortunately, is in all levels. You need to have a very wide view because the fraud and the attacks are coming from all of the areas and all of the directions. We are looking from a governmental level, from a cross-sector level, uh, on a nation state, cyber criminals, trends that exist and so on, but we do not see the actor from within or all of the friendly frauds because they are not uh, cyber-based or cyber attacks. Um, if you will go to a new uh, operations center, you can see that the, this is not a, a only security operations center as it was in the past. It is a fusion center that connects all of the different pieces, that connects the external perspective together with the internal one, together even with the physical, physical one in order to make sure that uh, you're secured. So um, and my, my recommendation is to observe all of the different layers and to share information and to share um, threats, attacks to a level that you can uh, say, you know, you can uh, manage and protect your uh, own uh, goals and reputation, but still the sharing piece is dramatically increasing the level of protection to all of all of the ecosystem because of the fact that there is, you know, a, a certain point of a level that you can reach with technology. You need to combine everything together in order to protect the broader uh, surface. So true collaboration in actually donating insights and data into a, a collective because it is about the health of the ecosystem. Correct. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Let's look at it from uh, the the FI side now, and I'm going to ask you, Tim, what would what's your first piece of advice to anyone who is tackling fraud? Uh, well, just in just in terms of um, how how I, how I would change it, I think the schemes play a huge role here now. They've got to lead this. Um, leave this industry uh, and if you look at the chargeback rules that, that have been in place they've been in place for a long time and if you were writing a set of chargeback rules in relation to e-commerce they would not look anything like the chargeback rules that that, that, that we have at the moment um, so i think that they ought to start mandating uh, a lot more um, third-party use to to start to share the data um, that, that that they're not doing at the moment it's being left down to individual players in the industry who they choose to contract with and, and, and work with. And I, and I think having some uniformity um, in that area would make a massive difference. 
to 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 fighting this area. It's too it's, it, it's too much money, and the problem is merchants view this as a cost of doing business, and that's the wrong that's the wrong perception entirely. It shouldn't be the cost of doing business because it's perfectly uh, uh, capable of, of, of being fought. You will never get rid of fraud altogether, ever, um, but you can mm. reduce it significantly. So I'm sensing a theme here, which is active participation in the sharing of information across the ecosystem at all levels. Monica, what do you have to say? And I'm going to give Sandra the last word on this, but what do you have to say about uh, advice on, on, on picking this matter? Yeah, so I mean, if I look at uh, the four of us on this panel today, um, you know, it, it really, it takes, it's, it, it is like, you know, a team effort. Um, so it, it, in order to get results and, you know, it needs to start with, you know, consumer education, government support, making sure that we have consortium data that is out there that's available so that everybody benefits. Um, that, you know, is incredibly important regulatory oversight to actually support best interests of all parties. Um, then we need to make sure that we have, you know, the, the latest intelligence with all of the rich data and analytics. And, you know, as Sandra was saying, I mean, to be able to, if you don't have, uh, if you don't have the, the best technology today, you are blockbuster. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's sometimes I think we need to look at possibly even cannibalizing what, what we've done in order to make sure that we're going to survive and thrive in this new world because it's not going away we have to redefine a new normal and it's speeding up not slowing down then if you look at you know tim's background well it, looking at what a deep insight there's no way to disconnect responsibilities and and accountabilities between the acquirer and the merchant and there's too many siloed components the fact is if a merchant has sound risk management and they can only have that if they understand you know all of these different components and they're able to influence change in a fair way that that's going to be the most successful approach and then lastly you know in terms of making sure that they can scale with the increase in chargebacks the increase of, of these things this is you know we're, we're getting into a consumer entitlement age where I don't even know if we should look at chargebacks as being a bad thing. Maybe we should look at it as this is a concierge service and every single customer is going to contact their bank. The problem is remove the penalty. If they're contacting their bank for a customer service query, let's make sure that that isn't weighted with a penalty and that we actually deliver the customer what they want and we, we measure things for what they really are. Having the data is absolutely Thanks, a Mo. requirement. Thank you. I think uh, we could probably we could spend a lot more time on on that particular uh, last point that you made, but I want to give Sandra the last word in summing this up. Um, it's new. It's a it's a brand new world. How do what's the starting point? What is the what's what's your advice on where to start for anybody in the in the ecosystem? You've got the last sure. word before we wrap up. Thank you. So from Microsoft's point of view, we believe in, a, in both a macro and a micro approach. You mentioned consortium data. That is an absolute must. Machine learning and artificial intelligence, that's the only way that you're going to be able to keep up with these fraudsters and be able to share that information with the issuing banks. So that is one of the things that we do best is actually share that information along with consortium data. You need account protection. Um, you know, when you're dealing with SIM swapping and things of that nature, it starts at that account protection level. So if you have bot scoring or a bot protection, that's going to eliminate that, that scenario right there. So you started at the front end and then you work in the middle part with your consortium data and sharing that trust knowledge. And then on the back end, you need to share that information with companies like Chargebacks 911 because they have a, a, a larger view. The banks only get a few pieces of information before they approve a transaction. So if you can provide them with a greater sense of what this entity is behind the transaction, they'll make better decisions and then we can eliminate 
those chargeback claims because we have the data to prove, no, this was a legitimate transaction that was made with your particular payment type or payment method. So it sounds like a little bit of KYC on the transaction, not on the actual individual making the purchase. Correct, so, correct. <laughs> excellent. Well, I want to thank all of you, uh, Monica, Rahav, Tim, Sandra, for joining today. It's been fascinating. It also has shown us that really the new normal is mind-bogglingly complex, but that consortium approach, collaboration, uh, and openness and willingness to share data at multiple levels from very granular to the macro sense across the entire ecosystem is going to be key in addressing fraud going forward. My thanks to you all, and I'm sure that our audience thanks you as well. Thank you so very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're all, it's been great. Thank you. And I'm turning it back, uh, I think, to our hosts. So we've got a small break uh, coming up, and then we will reconvene a little bit later for another conversation on security and user experience. So stick around if you're part of the NPE Summer Week. But thank you all for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure to talk about risk and security with these experts here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.